From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Some big government projects are on hold tonight because of response to the coronavirus. The acting director of the Office of Personnel Management, Michael Regas, says the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey this year won't come out in May as usual. OPM's aiming for a release date of July 13th. The Defense Health Agency is pausing its implementation of the MHS Genesis electronic health record system. Corey Hughes of the Defense Healthcare Management System says the pause will let healthcare providers focus on responding to COVID-19. NextGov reports the DHMS will continue to support the eight existing deployments of the Genesis system. The e-commerce portal project the General Services Administration has been working on is on hold too. Deputy Assistant Commissioner Laura Stanton says the team that was working on the portal project is deploying to COVID-19 response. FCW reports Stanton didn't say when GSA is aiming to award the contract. The White House has told federal agencies to focus on mission critical services and scale back anything agencies can't do remotely. As agencies move more tasks online, they're finding the limits of the digital infrastructure that's in place. Jeremy Grant's Managing Director of Technology Business Strategy at Venable. Jeremy, welcome back. One of the challenges that, is, that agencies are finding is who gets to access what as they're teleworking. What's the identity management piece of the telework issue, not just for government workers themselves, but for services they're providing to citizens? Sure. Well, telework obviously introduces a whole bunch of risks into the equation. It's one thing if you're sitting at your desktop in a federal agency and they're able to manage a device you're on, uh, manage you know the security environment. Uh, we're now having millions of employees working from home. Uh, some of them aren't on government-issued uh, devices. They might be working on a personal device. And so it's really important to make sure uh, that you have some sort of a way to essentially project out security there. Uh, for example, are they logging in with multi-factor authentication? Uh, are they able to connect with the VPN so that their, uh, their data is encrypted back and forth? Uh, things like that suddenly become much more important. I talked to one of the telework leaders at the Navy the other day, and she was describing to me the fact that they're essentially going back and making sure that the employees are tele teleworking are able to access their devices through their CAT cards. What do they do about employees whose cards expire during this, this, uh, this situation and so on? What should agencies be thinking about or what should they be looking at to try to learn from this to think about identity management moving forward after we get past the COVID crisis? Well, I think one of the things that this crisis has uh, made clear is some of the shortcomings of relying on just the CAC and the PIV model. Uh, and OMB, to their credit, put out a memo uh, the Sunday before last uh, that basically pointed out, hey, if we're relying on an in-person proofing process to give you one of these cards, as well as an in-person issuance process, that's not going to work right now because in-person uh, uh, activities are now verboten. So they basically told agencies, you need to make a risk-based approach here and look to some alternative types of credentials, some alternative authenticators uh, that could be used in the interim uh, to still provide a high level of security uh, until such time as you can actually get people uh, a physical smart card that they can use to log in with. So I might not be using the right technical terms, but I'm thinking of the cohort of federal employees as a controlled environment and, and contractors. Theoretically, the government should know who those three and a half or four million people are. The 
flip side of that is a more uncontrolled cohort, and that's pretty much everybody else, and identifying that when somebody comes to the Social Security Administration for a service that the, a teleworker is providing, knowing that that person really is that person, that's really the tough nut to crack in identity management. Do you think I'm reading this right? Yeah, no, I think so. I think, look, at a time when we're suddenly all digital, the importance of identity becomes more important than ever. Um, you know, we're, we're 27 years now since the old Pete Steiner cartoon in The New Yorker where the, the dog on the Internet turns to his friend the dog and says on the Internet, nobody knows you're a dog. Well, now that we're all just on the Internet, I'm not even here with you today, which is really <laughs> disappointing. Um, it's becoming much harder to deliver citizen services. And I think one of the things you saw back in... Uh, mid-March when OMB ordered agencies to pare down Michigan critical services, they said, look, if you're requiring face-to-face -face interactions with citizens and you don't have a way to re remotely identify them, those services are just on hold. Um, and it's unfortunate that that's where we're at, but I think part of the challenge is we have not made the investment in digital identity infrastructure on the consumer and citizen-facing side that a lot of other countries have made. Uh, you know, in Europe last week, they put out a note basically I don't know if boasting is the right word, but basically touting the fact that because they have invested in electronic identity systems, citizens don't need to leave their homes to interact with public administrations. They can just use e-government systems uh, to, to carry on. And, you know, when you contrast uh, what Europe's done or some of our peers in Canada or Australia or the UK, they've made significant investments in this infrastructure and we're unfortunately falling behind. There's, there's hope. I, I, and I say that because I did my census uh, response this week. I got a, a letter in the mail from the Census Bureau, had a code inside. I filled, went on the website, filled out the code. It recognized me as me, and I filled out all of the information. Is the, that's a potential solution, but obviously it requires the, the kind of the backfill to make sure that everybody's got their letter on time. And I wonder if that's the build, maybe a building block for what you're talking about, Jeremy. Yeah, I think depending on the transaction you're trying to do, there are some simpler solutions you can use. So certainly for the census where, look, I'm having the Postal Service deliver something to my house, that's got some security in and of itself. Um, and, you know, also the information I'm collecting, you know, the, the odds of an individual trying to, you know, defraud the census, for, for lack of a better term, are pretty low and the implications are pretty small. Um, what we are seeing more of a challenge now is Congress, you know, just passed and the the president signed this law to push out billions of dollars, hundreds of billions of dollars in aid to you know Americans, both as individuals and small businesses. The struggles that we're seeing right now uh, as they try to figure out um, essentially who's who. You know, I, I might be named Francis Rose, but there might be 30 of you, and I might not be the one who owns Francis Rose's small business. And so I, I think you're seeing some real challenges there, um, where. The systems that we'd like to have aren't the ones we have in place, and so we're seeing government scramble to do the best they can to, to get dollars out. But one of the, the, the questions I'm getting a lot from people right now is, couldn't we be doing this better, and can't we be making some investments in 2020 and beyond so the next time we have a crisis, we don't have to shut off some of these services. We've got an easy way to get things uh, moving out. If we did a check, I'll bet there are more Jeremy Grants than there are Francis Roses on the census roll, Jeremy. It's great to see you, my friend. We, Thank we you. can have a contest on that afterwards, <laughs> absolutely. Sounds great. Thank you very much. Coming next, revamping the Department of Homeland Security on the fly. Straight ahead on Government Matters, an all-star panel taking the department apart and putting it back together again. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
One of the functions of the Department of Homeland Security's response to coronavirus is maintaining a list of what we do and don't know about it so far as part of the response to the pandemic. The Atlantic Council is working with former DHS leaders to recommend reforms for the agency so it can respond to the virus and other national security concerns better. Tom Warwick is non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Homeland Security for Counterterrorism Policy. Tom, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. What exactly are you going to look at at the current structure of the Homeland Security Department to recommend how to improve it to move forward? So the COVID-19 crisis has uh, made it very clear to the American people uh, that the Department of Homeland Security has one of the most important missions in government in terms of keeping the American people safe, healthy, uh, and prosperous. Uh, uh, in addition, uh, even apart from the COVID-19 crisis that we're all in right now, DHS is also responsible for such incredibly diverse things as protecting our cybersecurity, uh, keeping terrorists off of airplanes, uh, taking care that we are safe uh, in, in our boats and, and uh, in the maritime waters of the United States. It administers the immigration system. Uh, uh, it has a budget of $60 billion. It's the third largest cabinet department in the U.S. government. Uh, and yet there really hasn't been enough thinking about how to, to address all of the problems that are in DHS's missions. What I've noted since the Department of Homeland Security stood up what, is that people talk all the time about whether the functions that are in DHS should stay there, whether there are other functions in other parts of the government that should go to DHS, and so on. Mm -hmm. What's the framework that you'll use to determine what's a homeland security function and whether that function should live inside DHS as you're looking at how you're thinking about restructuring the agency? Well, you know, one of the most extraordinary things about DHS is the enormous commitment uh, that its employees have to its mission. Uh, every federal employee viewpoint survey uh, has seen that DHS's uh, uh, morale is always rated as last among all of the large cabinet departments, 17 out of 17. Uh, and yet DHS employees remain enormously committed and enthusiastic about their mission. Uh, and that very tension uh, is what uh, gives us hope that there's a way of, of finding a way to make the department uh, a better place both to serve the American people uh, and to be able to do its job. So what we're gonna do is put together uh, a number of experts uh, in a series of study groups. We're gonna look at DHS's mission. We're going to look at how it handles public-private partnerships, which is unique in the federal government. We're gonna look at a number of other areas uh, that uh, people have identified over the years where DHS really can do better uh, and find a way of addressing some of the challenges that it has. You, I, I'm struck by your humility as you talk about the experts that you have, people like Michael Chertoff and Jay Johnson. Janet Napolitano, mm -hmm. Rand Beers, Kevin McAleenan. I mean, you've got really an all-star panel of people who really know this agency at all levels from management yes. uh, uh, broadly across HQ all the way down through the components. Yes, and, and uh, any one of them I would describe as, as reminiscent of the John Kennedy quote when he had Nobel Prize laureates at the White House and said this was the finest collection of minds except when uh, Thomas Jefferson dined alone. Uh, each of the individuals that we have on our senior advisory board has just enormous breadth across the mission of the department. In addition to them, we have uh, uh, over four undersecretaries, 
uh, half a dozen assistant secretaries, over a dozen deputy assistant secretaries, uh, people who've been at the rank and file at the senior working levels uh, throughout all parts of DHS. There's enormous enthusiasm and interest uh, in, that people have had even just to this uh, uh, think tank project. Uh, this is the first one that's been done really since about 2004. So there's an enormous amount of interest and enthusiasm to find ways to make the Department of Homeland Security better. Are you also going to look at the oversight structure on the Hill and in, in the way that it interacts with the Homeland Security Department, Tom? Yes, this has been uh, one of the things that's plagued the department in ways that are often not fully appreciated. DHS reports to more than 90 different congressional committees and subcommittees. It's the only cabinet department uh, that has that many people uh, helping it out or looking over its shoulder uh, uh, from Capitol Hill. Uh, there have to be ways of streamlining this, and there have been no less than 11 other uh, studies and reports that have made this recommendation in the past. Uh, frankly, there's not that much work that we're going to have to do except to dust off the best of the ideas that are already out there. But the key is going to be persuading the Congress during the very brief period between the November 3rd election and the January 4th convening of the 117th Congress that these kinds of reforms are really necessary so that the department can do its job better. We have a little bit less than a minute left. What will you do? Your deliverable is July 2020. What will you do between yes. now and then to, to make sure that this becomes something that somebody does something with rather than becoming another one of those reports that goes on a shelf? Well, one of the things that we're trying to do is put together uh, as you mentioned, a number of the, the most important and influential leaders that the department has had. We're working to bring together all of the other good ideas that have come out of think tanks and studies of the department. What I think we're going to see uh, is a major push this summer uh, and into the fall to try to address some of these problems that, that have built up over the years. But there really is a window now uh, we hope, regardless of what happens in the November election, uh, to really find a way to make DHS better at doing its mission. Tom, congratulations on getting this underway. We'll look forward to having you come back when it's finished and learn more about it. Appreciate your time today. Happy to do that. Up next, a big bump in contract spending in the coronavirus stimulus package. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what's in all those contracts that you should watch? Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. The new stimulus bill gives guidance for contractors on sick leave benefits in the short term. In the long term, the bill could mean big changes for contractors and what the future of working government looks like. Rich Butel is principal at Cirrus Analytics. Rich, thanks very much for coming on as always. What's your big takeaway from this package? What, what difference is this going to make for people who do business with the government on an ongoing basis? Well, Francis, first I want to say thank you to you. You're the glue that is holding this community together uh, throughout this crisis. Um, but to answer your question directly, um, I believe that the invocation of the Stafford Act and the broad emergency authorities, as well as this third supplemental uh, with its uh, uh, very, very innovative approach to labor hour contracting and the like, um, portends uh, uh, government streamlining of acquisition red tape going forward. 
what is the responsibility of the vendor community to make sure that they deliver on this well in order for this, uh, these authorities to stick around? Because th these are the kinds of things that vendors have been saying for years, we want to be able to do this, we want to be able to deliver faster for government, and we can't because of these regulations. Now that they're gone, what has to happen? Well, first, I, I think the contracting community has stood up itself uh, and come forward in partnership with government under these unique circumstances in a way that really does uh, warrant some acknowledgement. Um, you are seeing uh, many, many companies uh, reaching out to government with an open hand, trying to uh, provide uh, critically needed goods and services through this time frame. But obviously, particularly with the new oversight mechanisms um, that are in place under the CARES Act, both a, a congressional oversight committee um, as well as a new special IG for pandemic spending, um, you uh, are going to see a, a very, very uh, significant oversight uh, capability going forward. And so vendors need to behave themselves uh, going forward as a result. What do you think, how, how do you think that oversight effort will be different than the typical oversight environment that exists any other time? Well, I think it'll be more focused. Um, recall, there's precedent. We've had the special IG uh, for Iraq spending and the special IG for Afghanistan, uh, Sigur and Cigar. Um, uh, and so there's a lot of precedent for how these uh, cross-agency uh, cross, uh, uh, special IGs operate. But what we've not seen um, is the creation of, of such a broad uh, special committee in Congress there was the um, uh, Committee on Wartime Contracting in Iraq and Afghanistan that was also uh, somewhat similar. But this one is a very broad committee headed by Glenn Fine, the IG for the Department of Defense, who's highly, highly uh, respected. Um, and, and so it's a broad, um, uh, a, a very broad set of new oversight capabilities that will be coming online. Well, and the, the other people on this panel include just about every inspector general from just about every cabinet level agency across government. I mean, it's like an all-star panel of IGs that are going to be watching this. To me, it, it seemed more reminiscent of the SIGTARP when uh, TARP came out in, what, 2008-2009. That's right. And recall that SIGTARP really pioneered a lot of uh, data forensics and, and applied uh, innovation and IT in a way that we'd never seen before. Uh, and uh, I think that some of that know-how that was created and is still resident over Treasury can be brought to bear very quickly. Um, but the, the good news story here is not the potential uh, to get hammered later on with oversight. It's the broader flexibilities that are, be, are being trotted out here under, under Stafford Act and the like, and the need for government to adopt commercial innovation in a faster, uh, more timely fashion. Um, and I think that, that once agencies get get a taste for how fast and agile they, they can in fact uh, be under these circumstances they're going to want to continue it um, when things return back to normal it's interesting because a lot of what you're talking about's been happening in the defense department for a long time under 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 other transaction authorities and DHS has experimented with that too and it strikes me that this is a similar capability for agencies, um, and, and I think you're right. I think when people figure out how to manage these and how to get them to work well, they'll want more of them. Is this something legislatively that Congress will have to come back and say, okay, you can have this forever, or is the authority in this bill sufficient to do that, Rich? Well, again, 
these new authorities are are uh, central to this crisis and are under the, the Stafford Act umbrella as well as the new legislation, the CARES Act, that's Section 3610. Um, but DOD has been a leader in this regard, particularly with OTAs, other transactions authority, but also standing up innovation cells throughout DOD, you know, whether it's AFWorks and SoftWorks um, and Army uh, Innovation Command in, in Austin, Texas and the like. But between these innovation authorities going forward and a major transition in the way that we work uh, by reinforcing in, uh, critical infrastructure, telework, uh, our, our existing systems to handle this unprecedented surge in capacity, I would say it reflects very well on cloud technologies writ large and, and highlights the need for us uh, to build out uh, our sophistication and our technology platforms across government. Rich, about 30 seconds left. What do you think the landscape, how do you think the landscape looks different a year from now or two years from now, long after we're past the COVID-19 stuff, but and, and kind of back to whatever the new normal looks like? I think we're gonna see across government an, an adoption and an embrace of, of, uh, of collaboration and remote telework opportunities USPTO is the poster child for, for telework. They've had some hiccups in the past uh, and the like. And I think government can work collaboratively and remotely uh, going forward and, and ought to consider that. There, there's no reason to have large clusters of people uh, centralized in Washington, D.C. Um, innovative young companies um, are dispersed and, and uh, decentralized and, and do just fine. Rich Butel, thanks very much as always. Thanks, Francis. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You can get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC 7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.